The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. So they finally decided to tell you, bunch of damn time wasters. You ought to have been with the president three months ago. But why me, not you? Look at this thing. Pile of junk. Shock you? <laughs> no, not shock. Surprise. No, I think it's a, uh, a beautiful piece of contemporary sculpture. That's why you and not me. I'm just too damned old. You think I can handle him? I've known them all. Freud, Jung, Reich, Pablo, Sullivan. All the old giants. They were men of their time. You're a man of your time. The president's analyst. Beautiful. He's a vital man. You need every bit of your strength. Well, what kind of shape is he in? There's no manifestation of illness. No real neurosis. Certainly not psychotic. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, November 30, 2017. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And welcome to our show today, where we are pleased to have in studio... Salim Mansour, and we will be discussing the Great Reckoning that's coming in North America, which includes a discussion on Trump's foreign policy tour, Trump in Asia, what is happening in Saudi Arabia, and what's happening in the United States. So before we begin that conversation, don't forget you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, hear us on WBCQ and Channel 292 Shortwave, Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, including Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and, of course, all of our past broadcasts. Thanks for joining us in the studio again today, Salim. I understand that uh, you being a political science professor, your your forte and and your uh, interest of late has been Donald Trump, his effectiveness, his uh, travel overseas... Um, the speeches he's given in in um, South Korea and at the United Nations. I think we've talked about that before. And recently in Saudi Arabia as well. Uh, I have to ask you, is there a connection between Trump and the internal upheaval that's happening in Saudi Arabia? And lastly today, we're going to be talking about, of course, sex. And all oh, the celebrity <laughs> sex scandals that are going on. And you have identified a link and I think if there's going to be an overarching theme to this show, we could call it the Great Reckoning, as uh, the, the uh, what is it? The cows are coming home to roost. Yeah. <laughs> no, the chickens are coming home Great to roost. Great Reckoning with the wrecking ball <laughs> for a lot of people. Why don't we start it off with Trump in Asia, Salim? Your impressions? Yeah, thank you, uh, Robert. Trump in Asia ten day tour that took place early in November, traveling first to Japan, then South Korea, China. Vietnam for an APEC conference, that's the Asia-Pacific region, and ending up in Philippines for where he returned home. The American media, the mainstream press, and I think Canadian too, did not 
provide much coverage of Trump's tour. First thing I noticed, because I was wondering how come everybody suddenly got so quiet when Trump went on his well, tour? Well, if you saw his speech, for example, in South Korea, you'd understand it's because the man knows what he's talking about and presents yeah. himself as a proper statesman. That's my impression. Precisely. I mean, there was not much coverage or the coverage that is due to the leader of the Western world, the free world, going on a, a tour of Asia, in this case, Trump. And the American press was obsessed with domestic politics, which is what you, uh, Robert, are describing as uh, the great reckoning with a W. Uh, <laughs> reckoning with a W. I think yeah, that's a good way of putting it together. So let's unpack the Trump tour. I mean, to unpack it, I would suggest you have to put it against the frame of reference in American politics of the last eight years uh, and where Trump comes along and how Trump is being received abroad. In Asia, he was received not only very warmly, but very enthusiastically, according to all the reports. Uh, I understand in China, they really love him because he's a strong leader and they appreciate that. Just about everywhere. I mean, he was he was received by Japan where he first landed by the Prime Minister Abe with great warmth, uh, took him for a, a game of golf as soon as he arrived, you know, and tried to smooch with him in every which direction. And then he, he goes to um, uh, South Korea. Oh, before, where, you go where, to, before you get to South Korea, let's just stop a moment and look at one of those little moments at the uh, Japanese uh, tour where the media, and I always like to come back to the media because they are part of the major problem in this, in this right. world, looked at Prime Minister Abe feeding the fish, the koi, right. <laughs> at uh, the palace. And, 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 of course, Trump doing the same thing. Now, what they showed in the American left-wing press, which is basically all of the American press, was Trump disrespecting the president or the prime minister by dumping out the, for the fish food in the pond, deliberately editing out the fact that Trump did exactly what the prime minister Abe did. They first of all spooned it out, three spoonfuls each, and then Abe, I guess getting a little impatient, I don't know, dumped his into the koi pond, and then President Trump did the same, and they both laughed and, and left. The editing was remarkable in, in its indictment of the press in the United States and their, their hatred for President Trump, even though he's acting like a perfect statesman. Well, what you're saying, Robert, is exactly what we have been watching for the last one year, this is the month that while Trump was on his tour, that he celebrated his uh, one-year anniversary of the election a year ago in November 8, 2016. The press has been uh, in the United States, and, and including Canada, mostly negative, if not vicious, uh, against Trump. And that is being consistent. And, and we can get into why, but it's beside the point right now. There's nothing that Trump does or can do or will do is going to satisfy the New York-Washington corridor in terms of the media and Hollywood and the establishment. For them, Trump is, in a sense, a benighted person, you know, a joker who got elected. But the world doesn't see him like that. And as you correctly point out, what was happening was that Trump was simply following his host, he, he was following the culture and the custom of his host and not that he was making it up. So he goes to South Korea and he is invited to speak from the floor of the parliament. And it is an immense speech that he gave, a rousing speech. But the point is that he sensed 
clearly the signal to uh, the leader of North Korea in no uncertain term that there are going to be deep consequences if he continues to go in the direction he's going in terms of building up his nuclear arsenal and ballistic missile. And anybody with a sense of understanding, and I'm sure the people in, in Korea do have, it was only a few months ago, early this year, when uh, Trump was sitting down for dinner with the president of China in his Florida state, Mar-a-Lago, you know, when uh, the Chinese president visited America in February, I think it was, just as he sat down to dinner, he announced that he had uh, launched a missiles, uh, a series of missiles against Bashar al-Assad. Mm-hmm. So this, this is a clear signal that, you know, you cannot play fool with Trump. Trump is going to take action. And he announced that from the floor. He goes to China. It's a rousing reception. Uh, The president of China takes him in to the forbidden city where no foreign leader has ever gone, Uh, not even Nixon in 1972. I was just about to say, so only Trump can go to China. Only Trump (laughs) can go to China. That's right. It's remarkable. It was it was used to be said that only Nixon could go to China yes. because of his anti-communism, right, in the 1950s, and he made his peace. But it, you're absolutely right. I mean, Trump bashed China during the election. And, oh, and, yes. And, 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 and he bashed China and continued to bash China on the question of trade. And currency manipulators. Currency and, like. man, uh, and, and North Korea. And here was the president of China putting out the full red carpet treatment and taking him into the Forbidden City for a special dinner. And Trump, on his part, had his granddaughter play, uh, sing in Chinese. Sing in Chinese, yes, it was remarkable. It was remarkable, this little girl, I I don't know what's her age, five or six, and doing it, you know, with complete confidence. And the Chinese was just bowled over. Well, the American media wasn't bowled over. They started criticizing this is not a presidential way of doing things, but that's beside the point. The the Chinese just fell in love with Trump, Uh, President Xi, it seems, wants to make up with Trump, and he signed some very big deals with China. But on the important point, the message is very clear that China has to rope in the North Korean leader. And then they go to um, Vietnam for the APEC conference, where he met with Putin, shook hands with Putin, asked Putin whether Putin had been involved in uh, meddling in American election. Putin says no, and Trump said that he would take Putin at his word. Again, the American media goes ballistic that, you know, Trump would take Putin at his word and not the American media and the American uh, intelligence on the whole Trump. Russia collusion scandal. Between the two of them, I'd pick Putin, too, as far as who I would believe, even though I don't agree with his <laughs> philosophy. Well, Trump I, I think probably, most, most Americans have come to that conclusion. Yes. You Trump know. tweeted later on, yeah. basically saying that what the American media don't understand is that you have to have a strong relationship with Russia. Right. It's in the United States' best interest. Exactly. And to, diplomatically, things like um, any involvement in the election, and by the way, the involvement was with the Democratic National committee (laughs) and the convention. They have to be put aside and people have to move on. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, let let me put it all of this, you know, we can go on, but put it in a frame for your audience. That is, the previous president, Obama's famous line was leading from behind, which amounted to basically shafting your allies and friends, throwing them overboard, which he did with Israel, for instance. 
and coddling with the enemies as he did with Iran, the, the nuclear deal that was his last kick in the can. So leading from behind the eight years of Obama was in, in, indeed a complete sham and a failure. What happened in Benghazi where an American ambassador was killed uh, and everything was blamed on a video <laughs> when it was actually, you know, the Al-Qaeda forces and the terrorists that had basically broken into the American embassy to the issue of Syria, where he drew the red line and walked away from the red line. And, and of course, the Iran deal. And, and then you see Trump. This was not only in the Asia tour, but his first foreign travel was uh, early on to Saudi Arabia in March when, when the king came out to the plane to receive him and that and he we saw him doing the sword dance and everything else. And he didn't bow to the and king as Obama bow. did. In fact, it was, the, it, it was the other way around and the whole planning by the Saudis where they brought in the entire leadership of the Arab Sunni world to come to Riyadh to meet with Trump and Trump read the right act on terrorism that, you know, they have to change. Then his trip to Europe to meet the European leaders and he went to Warsaw and he spoke at Warsaw and he reminded everybody speaking from Warsaw the cost of freedom what Poles had suffered in the Second World War from both the Soviets, Stalin and the Nazis, Hitler. It was a, it was a remarkable speech he gave there, you know, in defense of freedom. And again now uh, in his Asia tour and what you see is that the world sees what Trump has done is not leading from behind, but leading with a big stick and talking softly and getting the message out that America is back, that American allies can fully rely on American leadership. While Trump was speaking in South Korea at Seoul, 30 miles from the uh, uh, demilitarized zone, uh, the line uh, between North and South Korea, uh, at the parliament, there were three aircraft carrier task force in the waters close to the Korean peninsula. So carry your big stick, speak softly but carefully, and the the allies can now rely upon them. That's exactly what was happening in Philippines. That was happening, you know, with the Japanese. And a clear message to enemies, potential enemies and rival that... United States is not going to back off, which is a message clearly to China. The Korean miracle extends exactly as far as the armies of free nations advanced in 1953, 25 miles to the north. There it stops. It all comes to an end. Dead stop. The horror of life in North Korea is so complete that citizens pay bribes to government officials to have themselves exported aboard as slaves. They would rather be slaves than live in North Korea. And so, on this peninsula, we have watched the results of a tragic experiment in a laboratory of history. The result of this experiment are in, and they are totally conclusive.
The regime has interpreted America's past restraint as weakness. This would be a fatal miscalculation. This is a very different administration than the United States has had in the past. America does not seek conflict or confrontation, but we will never run from it. The time for excuses is over. Now is the time for strength. If you want peace, you must stand strong at all times. Salim, is there a, an understanding, I think, in, in Asia, let's say from Istanbul to Incheon at least, perhaps all the way to Tokyo, that in those countries, they are governed by bullies, thugs, thieves, tyrants, not to disparage necessarily the good leaders who are over there, but there's a mentality in a lot of the world, that half of the world, where respect is given to strong men. Could that be part of the difference that we see towards the uh, the attitudes towards Trump here in the West versus there in the in Asia? I think I've hit the nail on his head, Robert. Absolutely, I would say. So in Asia, there is appreciation for strong leaders or what we might put it in you know political philosophy term authoritarian leaders not necessarily to call trump a bully or a thug but simply as a man who knows what he wants and is not afraid to go out and get it well i mean strong leaders are leaders who are decisive yes uh, yes and who are not going to be pushed around were not unnecessarily deferential a few years ago there was a lot of discussion in american cultural scene about metrosexual and people like John Kerry and of course Obama, Obama. in that sense uh, 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 symbolize it the metrosexual personality you know comfortable in the sense of you know uh, having no gender clearly defined you know well in in Asia and I think not only in Asia, in Africa, in Middle East, so, but but as you pointed out, from Istanbul in Asia to say Seoul in North Korea, South Korea, this, there is not much respect for such personalities. You know, I mean, whatever may be the individual characteristic of a person, the leader has to be seen as manly, even if the leader turns out to be there are there are women leader and of the course. classic case was Golda in Goldemeyer uh, and Indira Gandhi Indira Gandhi, Indira yes. Gandhi defeated Pakistan army she took military action she was decisive you know so there is a great deal of appreciation for that sort of thing whether those leaders are thugs and uh is, <laughs> is, is 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 also true of, after all Mao Zedong in China was a man who is responsible for over 70 million dead but yes, and what you saw with Trump in Asia was an appreciation that Trump comes out as a strong man. And he demonstrated that in his, uh, uh, you know, during the period of uh, the primaries. He, he didn't back off. When he was challenged about his treatment about women, the way he, was tre- he treated women by Megyn Kelly in the very first debate, I mean, I think that is symbolic of it, if you want to put it, you know. <laughs> uh, every other candidate on that stage, that is 15 candidates on the stage, basically would have sweated and collapsed. What did Trump do? 
he eyeballed to eyeball Megan Kelly and said, only Rosie O'Donnell. <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, not everybody here in the West um, have, have such a, a poor opinion of Donald Trump. Uh, there was a recent article in the National Post by Conrad Black. Perhaps you can talk about Lord Black's impressions of a very effective president. It is. In his most recent piece in National Post, which was about Trump's uh, Asia tour, and he put it in context, was that here it is, uh, one year into his presidency, the first anniversary of his election, and the record speaks for itself. Three quarters of American economic growth at 3% plus. That is, America economically is back from the enemic flatline or 1% or negative growth rate during the Obama eight years to having, uh, you know, two consecutive quarters of 3% growth rate plus a booming stock market, jobs coming back, unemployment is down in over 17 years. So again, there's the context within which, again, you can see the strength and the confidence. That's just what I'm just trying to get at is that what part of the economic uptick is due to the policies of the American government and the Trump administration versus the very confidence that a man, a strong man like Donald Trump, instills in in, in the public, in, in that economic engine there. People are willing to get off of their butts and to go out and work knowing that there's an administration who's going to help them versus the Obama administration, which was a victim administration. Everybody is depressed. Everybody feels bad, so nobody works. We are constrained by time. So let me answer you by taking two issues and putting on the table. For eight years, Obama was out to go along with and get along with the European consensus on climate change. And then on the other side, the whole... 25 years, which is what Trump attacked during the primary and what is his, his whole policy has shifted towards, globalism, globalization, free trade, which was at the expense of the American workers and the expense of the American economy. Uh, so uh, uh, Obama's was uh, signing on to the Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP. Well, take those two things and put it on the table. What did Trump do? The very first thing he did was he tore up the Trans-Pacific Partnership. That means the signal to the world and particularly now on his Asia tour, because that was uh, one of the things that Prime Minister of Japan was hoping for, was that he could smooch Trump back to accepting the TPP, which was what's their part of their discussion at the APEC conference. But Trump was having none of it. What Trump said, and he spoke in all the capitals, plus at the conferences, that America is not going to allow to be taken for a ride when it comes to free trade. The playing field has to be level. There has to be, that is, the Chinese, the Japanese, and others have to open up their markets if they want to trade with America. So TPP, so that's one example. The other example was when he went to Europe earlier on in the year before the China, Asia tour, he tore up the uh, the Paris Accord, uh, the Paris Accord mm-hmm. you know, and there was there was no going back on it, despite the fact that the German Chancellor Merkel and the French President Macron tried to smooch Trump. I mean, Macron laid out the red carpet when Trump went to Paris, but there was no going back on the uh, on the on the climate change accord. 
the American people, or at least those who voted for Trump, understand clearly that Trump is a patriot. He wants to put America first. Economics has a lot to do with psychology because you are the people who are in business, they're calculating, they're investing, you know, so it is psychological. They clearly see that the Trump administration is going to be, he's a businessman, he's going to be friendly towards the free market capitalist economy that is the United States. Well, more than that, by sending these signals, he has sent a very clear direction in which he's going, in which they can have that confidence. Precisely. With Obama, it was ex exactly the opposite. You didn't know what he was going to do from one day to the next. Plus, he was doing the, he was the opposite. Yeah. He was focused upon issues that had less, little to do with economic growth and economic well-being of America, but all to do with his agenda, which was other than economic, yeah. which was to have a sort of a turning America upside down when it comes to society. You know, what was the last debate before the election? America having transgender bathroom. Yes. See, we have forgotten that. <laughs> yeah, it's forgettable. You see, so it is forgettable, yeah. but that's what it was. And the American public saw that. The whole issue about the wall and immigration is, again, the issue of economics. You know, if you're going to have America have an open door to anybody coming into America and America doesn't, what does that do to the working force in America? It lowers the wage rate. It creates greater unemployment, you know. So uh, the issue of immigration and wall cannot be separated. In fact, it, it is impossible to separate those things from the question of economic well-being. And you can see that now that the income level of the working class has increased very rapidly according to the reports. You know, it is 17-year high in America now. You know, there's a, a psychological wall that's already gone up around the borders of the United States, Absolutely. which I think is probably more effective than any physical wall that they could erect. Precisely. And you just have to look at the immigration numbers, mm -hmm. I believe, are down dramatically, mm -hmm. uh, especially from the Middle East, where they know that if they come into the United States, they're not going to get away with it. That's right. So it, it, just Donald Trump standing up saying that he's going to be building a wall has already effectively built a wall. Absolutely. Do you remember the power you once had? It was in you. When I was a very little girl and I would learn that you were going to go into a room, I would race to get to that room before you. The room itself would change. If there were people in it, they would stop and wait and listen to what you would say to them. How I longed then to take your hand and walk with you through the halls of power. To feel that terrible strength going from you into me. Kaim is the enemy. It wounds you with its days. I have no purpose to fight. I remember when they turned out Winston Churchill. I was hardly an old man then. I thought, how dare they do this? How dare they? And then my turn came, and I was far more angry because it was me. Well, I thought, let them get on without me. Hmm? 
They did. But what have they done? Is this the kind of world you would have made? I ran out of time. I don't want it now, Rena. To lie awake wondering how to move puny people to great purposes. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. It is thanks to our financial supporters that it is possible for us to continue our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with the world. Visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there, be sure to sample some of our timeless past broadcasts, all archived, not just for your listening enjoyment and convenience, but also as a record of our dedication, consistency, and principled approach to the discussion of all things Just Right about freedom and capitalism. And one place that freedom and capitalism have not yet been discovered, it seems, is Saudi Arabia, (laughs) Um, Salim. I've been reading some very strange news reports about princes being arrested, and it seems like a lot of internal turmoil going on over there that just gets a side column in our papers here, and it seems to me to be big news, not the little tiny mentions in the paper that we're getting here. Am I missing the point? No, you're not missing the point. It is very big news, but I would say that most people across the board have very little sense of what's happening because Saudi Arabia is such a close society. Mm. But what we do know from what has been spoken about in the Middle Eastern press, even in the Saudi Arabian press, is that there is a dramatic, unprecedented, I would call it almost revolutionary, developments that have taken place. The difference being that this revolution is taking place from the top down. It reminds me of a close society like Soviet Union, where the leadership, in this case Gorbachev, tried to bring about dramatic changes in the former Soviet Union with glasnost, that was the opening, and perestroika, some sense, uh, realignment of Soviet policies, domestic and foreign. In some sense, that's exactly what is happening, or similar something, something similar is happening in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is a close society. It is run by one family. It is the only country in the world that has on its name the name of the tribe or the family, Saudi Arabia, so the Saudi family that has run this place for now over 80 years. And what has happened that we know, November the 4th to be exact, there was uh, developments that the crown prince, who had been a young man somewhere in his early 30s, 32-year-old, name is Mohammed bin Salman. He's the son of the present king, King Salman, moved against his own family. There were uh, massive arrests. The numbers are unclear, but some numbers are about a dozen very senior princes were arrested. Uh, the numbers go as high as 40. These princes were arrested on charges of anti-corruption. There is very dramatic changes taking place according to what little we know in terms of foreign policy. Saudi Arabia has shifted completely its gears towards a rapprochement with Israel, uh, supported by Egypt and, of course, the United States and the 
Trump and a com- is this because of Trump you think or is it because of something there happening is, there internally is a, there is a there is a lot to be said that it is because of Trump in the sense that the Saudi leadership that has taken these move feel comfortable that Washington will back them up mm-hmm. instead of undermining them right. as as it was would have been with Obama so in that sense again the mood has shifted but coming back to Saudi Arabia coming back to the people who are driving Saudi Arabia uh, the president king and his son the crown prince so there is a massive realignment taking place and also uh, a clear indication that the saudis are moving against iran which is seen to be from the saudi perspective the real enemy that is threatening saudi arabia threatening saudi arabia's allies uh, there have been news about ballistic missile that had been aimed at Riyadh from Yemen which is an ally of Iran uh, there's trouble in Yemen that is in south of Saudi Arabia so when you put all of these little disparate news together what we find is that Saudi Arabia is undergoing a sort of a readjustment and to pick up Robert's word a reckoning is taking place a reckoning in the sense that the world has changed cold war is over there was the arab uprising which whose whose effects are still playing out uh, there was the various wars that emerged with isis and al qaeda and saudi arabia was caught in those wars but with coming of the trump administration we can see that isis has been crushed after what 5 years or so uh and saudi arabia now needs to come to terms with the new environment in the region and it seems to me that that's exactly what is happening whether this young man the crown prince his father is in his 80s as the king is in his 80s it is also reported that he is of ill health whether these people will survive in the massive changes that is taking is another question I mean we know that Gorbachev did not survive that as he opened up Soviet Union the first big casualty of that glasnost and perestroika was Gorbachev himself so we will be speculating you know how these things will all unfold from now to say 2 years 3 years 4 years later however to conclude if these changes work through if the present rulers and leaders are not overthrown then in some philosophical sense i might say that this is not only a consequences of the arab uprising that began in 2011 this is a signal or an indication that true change in this part of the world will come from top down rather than from bottom up in other words because there's no mechanism there for that precisely the institution are not there and, and and if you go back to the european history you know <laughs> the first has to be liberalization sure. people have to get used to the idea of freedom responsibility and accountability before you go into having a democratic vote and a democratic change that was the experience i was leading to to point out in the case of Egypt the overthrow of Mubarak in 2011 the Egyptian dictator military man who had been in power for over 30 years and Obama let that happen and so he resigned and left but Egypt fell into a chaos there was an election and the people elected a muslim brotherhood man 
who then had to be overthrown by a military coup because this Muslim Brotherhood man, who, by the way, was supported by Obama and Hillary Clinton, was leading Egypt in a direction which the very people who voted for this man didn't want to see Egypt go. Could right. that be an indication that, that the people in Egypt, and if not the whole Middle East, right. or at least the Arab Middle East, are simply not ready for the, the the institutions that we enjoy here in the West for freedom. They're not they're not ready for it. Well, we've we've brought up many times in the past when with the U.S. incursions into these parts of the world trying to introduce democracy. How crazy that yes. is! Because the rule is it's freedom first, then democracy. It cannot work any other possible way. You give people a vote who are all thinking like totalitarians, exactly. what are you going to get? Exactly. I mean, you know... Uh, uh, That's why they vote in Morsi. Particularly, we in Canada are politically very correct when we don't want to say things which would seem to be insulting to the uh, people that, in this case, the Middle East or in Africa. But you're absolutely right. There is no tradition. There's no history of democracy. No, I don't mean democracy. I'm freedom. What about freedom, though? Well, precisely. Like Tom said, freedom comes first. That comes first. There's no history of that These are tribal society. These are authoritarian society. Because, you know, this is is a classic argument and problematic, which is between anarchy and order. There has to be some basis of order. And if you don't have some order, either through people understanding and participating and being responsible, then somebody has to impose that order. In the case of China, we have seen the developments taking place in China that have been so dramatic over the last 20, 25 years, uh, in which China has opened up economically. China has fully embraced capitalism. China is now unquestionably the major power in Asia and is going to be the major power in the world. I mean, that's the whole issue that is about 21st century. How is the rest of the world going to accommodate China? But just to put it in perspective, China went through a revolution in the 1990s. That was the Deng Xiaoping revolution. It was throwing aside Maoism while preserving Mao's body in the Tiananmen Square, in the tomb. So Mao's body is there. Everybody goes and pays homage to Mao's body. But what Mao represented in terms of Maoism was thrown aboard. You know? So China is preparing. So the first was capitalist development. And it's top-down in China as well. Top-down. That's exactly what Deng Xiaoping was. And then we will see that China will move towards, if at all, in some form of limited democracy, they will experiment with it and they will grow. That's exactly has been the case in the Western world. You know, Britain went through stages of reform, the great reform, the the question of uh, giving franchise to voters, slowly, and finally the women vote, and so on and so forth. You cannot have a full-fledged democracy when people are not ready for it, and they don't know what it is all about. No. You know, when democracy you has to have limits, just like freedom does, and, and that's you the can't danger. Have, you can't have unfettered democracy. No, it, because it leads to what we call majority rule, which is what's happening now, and, and, you, and you've returned back to the totalitarianism of the mob, which doesn't right. change a thing. Right. You know, I suspect and, uh, that I when prefer a dictator to a mob. I suspect yeah. that when Trump visited Saudi Arabia, when was it in May? Yes. Um, that the word he put in the ear of MBS or Mohammed bin Salman is 
listen, the rest of the world is going to leave you behind. You're going to be forever a tribal, despotic, um, caveman-like society while the rest of the world goes to the moon <laughs> and, and charts outer space and, and has an economy un, un, unprecedented because your oil, we're, we're starting to turn away from that. So unless you change, you're going to be left behind. And I don't think that um, Mohammed bin Salman wants to be left behind. I mean, he's a world traveler. He's a billionaire many times over. He's a capricious billionaire. I understand he bought a billion-dollar yacht off some Russian on a, just on a whim. But I think that he understands exactly what Trump is saying. And Trump is saying, look, we're not going to interfere with your internal politics. But you have to do this yourself. And that's why and it seems almost two-faced. Bin Salman, Mohammed bin Salman, is on the one hand allowing women to drive and to attend football games. But on the other, he's actually crucifying, and I mean that word exactly, crucifying, literally crucifying, peaceful protesters. 17-year-old peaceful protesters. So, I mean, you have this dichotomy of a very backward civilization. They dress nice, they drive nice cars, but at heart, well, look, they are really um, not of this world. Look, I mean, nobody uh, has uh, a clue of how to bring about any change, you know, by putting a key there and flipping it over. My point exactly, the, the, you don't the, the, do it overnight. The West doesn't have it. What, what the West is today was also, you know, uh, uh, a question of trial and error over mm -hmm. a whole period of time that we've come to it. I mean, remember, the founding fathers in the United States sitting around a table, you know, and, and were trying to work out the Constitution and the Republicans. All of them were slaveholders. You know, they were all men, and they all came from a certain background. But the United States is today the world's greatest democracy, stages and stages and stages of development. Well, you're, you're found to point out uh, that in the United States it was a, like a Jeffersonian revolution, while in the rest the, of the, the West the, the, it was the, a Burkean the slow point, revolution. Right. The point is that these things go through, you know, trial and error and a society moves forward, you know. Part of the trial and error is there is all going to be violence, there's going to be conflict, there's a societal conflict because society is too complex and there are cleavages over there. I give the example of India. India is the world's largest democracy, you know. India became independent exactly 70 years ago this year, 1947-2017. And India had not had a military dictatorship like so many other countries. India has developed its institutions, it has had elections, it has the constitutional rule, prime ministers, presidents, but all of these were based upon the previous 250 plus years of British governance in India. Right. You see, the slow the process, process, the process of transition and the entire leadership, the founding fathers of Indian independence, you know, Mahatma Gandhi, Jawaharlal Nehru, on and on and on. They were all educated in Britain. They all spoke English. They all knew that John Locke and, 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 and John Stuart Mill, you know, inside out. And so they established a parliamentary democratic system based upon the country that had ruled them, mm -hmm. you know. They could look outside their country to see what worked and didn't work elsewhere, precisely. too. So you can look, I mean, you can see the case of India. India went through huge problems, but India has evolved democratically. That didn't happen in China. 1949, the Chinese was a revolution. 
And then Mao ran a basic prison, a gulag, a Chinese version of gulag, till Deng Xiaoping, after Mao's death, basically overthrew Maoism. So you think there's hope then in Saudi Arabia with this uh, mob? Absolutely. I mean, those people, I mean, I have been arguing with and and speaking with you all about what is happening in the Muslim world since 9-11 and how many times I've come on your show, how many times you've invited me, you know, and we have talked talked about this and I have tried to repeatedly point out, as opposed to those people who get into the vilification and smear thing, look, you know, what is happening in the Muslim world for the first time in the 20th and 21st century under the full glare of the media and the technology, a profound transition is taking place. If if the ISIS and the Saudis and the Taliban are these mad, decapitating versions of Islam that they believe in, the reason they are doing what they're doing is because on the other side of the coin, the vast majority of people won't change. Let's take a break there, Salim, and when we come back, let's talk about why celebrities can't seem to keep their hands off people. Back after this. <laughs> you really want to know? Yes. There were a couple of... Uh, I mean, there was... Uh, Jesus, I, 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 there were... This, let's face it, I fucked them all. I mean, that's what I do. That's why I went to beauty school. I mean, they're always there, and I can't, I, I just, I, I, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know what I'm apologizing for, so sometimes I fuck them. I, I go into that shop, and they're so great looking, you know, and I, and I, I'm doing their hair, and they feel great, and they smell great, or I could be out on the street, you know, and I could just stop at a stoplight or go into an elevator, or I, I there's a, Beautiful girl, I, I I don't know. I mean, that's it. It makes my day. I mean, it makes me feel like I'm going to live forever. And as uh, far as I'm concerned with what I'd like to have done at this point in my life, I, I, I know I should have accomplished more, but I got no regrets. I mean, Jesus, because I, I, I mean, I, um, I, uh, maybe that means I don't love him. Maybe it means I don't love you. I don't know. I'm glad you told me. I said, sit down. Now, George, either you admit it to my face man to man, or I'm going to have them pounded out of you. And they do a hell of a job, believe me. Yeah, I believe you. All right, I want to know about it. Oh, Jesus. I want to know how a guy like you thinks. Well, just have them put me away or whatever they're going to do. I'm, I'm... What, do you get your kicks sneaking around behind people's backs, taking advantage of them? 
Is that your idea of being anti-establishment? I'm not anti-establishment. Well, was it me? Well, you have something against me? What do you think I planned it? Jackie, Felicia, did they have something against me? Well, I'm sure you've done something they could be pissed off about. No, God damn it! I want to hear it from you. How am I going to tell you what they got against you? I mean, Christ, they're women, aren't they? You ever listen to women talk, man? Do you? Because I do till it's running out of my ears. I mean, I'm on my feet all day long listening to women talk, and I only talk about one thing, how some guy f***ed him over. That's all that's on their minds. That's all I ever hear about. Don't you know that? Well, I follow your thinking on that. I mean, face it. We're always trying to nail them, and they know it. They don't like it. They like it, and they don't like it. It's got nothing to do with you, Lester. It just happened. So let's change the topic, Salim and Bob, from um, societies where sex is so repressively put under wraps, so to speak, to a society like in the United States where celebrities are just falling over themselves, um, not understanding why all of a sudden they had celebrity status and were almost like untouchables. Nobody could touch them. They could get away with, like Harvey Weinstein, for many, many years with indiscretions that you and I would find reprehensible. Uh, so what's happened? What's happening is, as you said, there's a reckoning taking place. <laughs> Suddenly, people are no longer going to be tolerant about the sort of behavior the celebrities have been engaged in behind their facade, that they have been sexual predators. You know, you could be the president of the United States, but inside the Oval Office, you could be doing things with the intern that were unspeakable. But now it's no longer going to be tolerated. The curtain has been pulled, and like nine pins, these people are following. There could be a whole lot of other reasons about this. And most of these people are liberal. They're Democrats. They're the people who rode the high horse that they defend women, they defend children, they defend propriety. But they're the ones who have been the most abusive. Harvey Weinstein, you mentioned, Kevin Spacey, and now we have Charlie Charlie Rose, Rose. Al Franken. Al Franken. I think there will be many, many more to be exposed. But my thoughts are, apart from individuals, I mean, the whole problem of sex and and sexuality, we talked about it when we talked about Hefner, is an old story. There's nothing new about it. The question is decorum and propriety, and that has been blown, um, blown away. And so my thought leads me back to the question of all of these people, and they were very high-powered people, and they are very high-powered people. After all, President of the United States, you know, Bill Clinton and his wife running for the presidency and Secretary of State. So they're very powerful people, very successful in the profession. And what I find, therefore, very odd was the lack of self-awareness of what they were doing. The stories, we don't have time to get into it, but the stories that we're reading about them, about Charlie Rose, the way walking around nude or Harvey doing that, you know, in front of female workers and female companions and groping and, and unwanted sex. Where were their self-awareness? But didn't they all come from the hippie generation of free love? And, and yes, so this is where I was coming to. I mean, the other day... Charlie Manson died. He was 83 years old. Charlie Rose is 75 years old. 
I see this as a generational phenomena. That is, people born in the mid-30s to people born in the mid-60s, a 30-year period. This 30-year period coincides with the end of the Second World War and the Vietnam War. People born, they were the baby boomers, or the second generation of baby boomers. And so this period that we are looking at from about mid-1940s to mid-1960s or 70s, early 70s, is a period of profound changes in American society. This was the Vietnam years. This was the years when in the, on the cultural scene, there was a celebration of pot smoking, free sex, Woodstock generation, everything that was sort of undercover was now going to come out of the cover. That was the Playboy magazine. That was the Hugh Hefner story. And there were abuses. There were excesses. There were lack of self-awareness. The pendulum now is swinging back against that. That there, all the decorum, all the propriety, all the decency which any society must have, they're excessive. Putting a woman in complete burqa, like a coffin, is one side of the excess. The other side of the excess is taking the issue of Woodstock and making it into your lifestyle, whether it is with Charlie Rose or Harvey Weinstein, is an excess. And I think that's where we have arrived at. And the rest of the society is saying, that is middle America that voted for Trump, is saying, we are not going to go down this road. Isn't it interesting, not just the behavior of these people, but the fact that they could get away with it up until basically just this year. What has happened this year that this older generation is being brought to justice, if you will? Again, we, we are in the midst of this pendulum swing. So even as we are speaking about it, we ourselves do not have that deep perspective. I think, you know, 25, 30 years from now, 50 years from now, when people write about the events of the first 20 years of the 21st century, I think one of the main watershed event in American politics and culture was the election of Trump. We're so close to it that we cannot fully measure it. The election of Trump was unprecedented. But nobody is he just expected a symptom? it. Is, it was the election of Trump an, another I, symptom I, of I, something I, else? I, in my immediate reaction is a, lo- a lot of these things. It's like the Russia-Trump collusion, that the, the story that was hatched up to explain why Hillary had lost after leading with 20 points a week before the election. And so it was... Trump hadn't won. It was Russia that stole the election and gave it to Trump. Was a story that was fabricated. But nothing burger, yes. And the media ran with it, and now the story is falling apart. With as more and more probing has taken place with uranium one, with you know the email scandal, and so on and so forth. I think the other side of it was that Trump, his Hollywood tape, his groping, or or at least the allegation of him groping, you know. When he said that celebrities can grab a woman by the privates, I thought he was talking about Bill Clinton. Precisely. Trump is no sexual angel, you know, and he never claimed one. He's a a twice-divorced man, you know. Well, he's uh, of the generation as well, isn't he? He belongs to that generation, and and he's a New Yorker, and, you know, he was a playboy, or at least has a sense of a playboy, you know. And the liberal media was going to go after Trump on this issue, but they failed. Remember that that, 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 uh, Hollywood tape came out on the week of the election, almost. 
right? Any other person, it was like the Rosie O'Donnell, the first debate, any other person would have fallen. What had happened, in my view, and again, future historians will talk about this and will have much greater perspective, was the flyover country had become inoculated. They were tired of these stories. They wanted the whole establishment. Yeah, middle America. The whole establishment, whether it was the political establishment in in Washington, whether it was the uh, Hollywood establishment, you know, uh, Hollywood celebrity, or whether it was the the flyover country was fed up with them. They know that they their values, their culture, no longer reflected that. So when the stories are told about Trump, the people were inoculated. They didn't buy it, but that opened up a door. And I think the liberals have been hoisted with their own petard. They went after Trump, but it was the people who were going after Trump as Trump. Remember, in the second or the third debate uh, uh, in 2016, that is the presidential debate, Trump had been attacked by Hillary Clinton, what being called he and his people are deplorables. Yes. Right? You can put them all in a basket of deplorable. Well, what did Trump do? He came to the debate, and who did he bring along? Juanita Broderick, Paula Jones, (laughs) and (laughs) Kathleen Wiley sitting right there. You know? Who were these women? These were the women who had been groped, raped, assaulted by Bill Clinton, and Hillary Clinton had done her best to destroy their reputation. Who can forget that picture of Bill Clinton with the shifty gaze looking over at those three as he sat there during the debate? Exactly. And the people saw that, you see. But that is where the hoisting on their own petard began, Mm. you see. So here it is. That's where it is. If Trump is going to be accused of these things, that you accusers are the ones who have been doing this thing for the last so many years. I think a where lot of have it, you Where have you answered these questions? I think a yeah. lot of it, and you can, you can correct me on this if you think otherwise, Salim, but I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that we now have more than millions of people watching uh, Joe Rogan, uh, Stephen Crowder, uh, Bill Whittle, uh, listening to this show, and, and where we can go online and actually see with everybody having a camera in their hand, a movie video camera, exactly how the media have misled society, um, if not, uh, you know, recently, but maybe for decades. And and uh, the, basically the curtain has fallen. But this is what and the man behind the curtain has risen, sh- if you sh- want to look at it that way. A <laughs> yeah, so, 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 so it, again, people underestimate, uh, I mean, the intellectual, they underestimate the people. Mm-hmm. So what basically you're saying is, the media and the establishment had been doing a crying wolf for too long. And people had become, that's what I'm saying, people had become inoculated. And what happened in this past one year, the attacks on Trump have all boomeranged back on the attackers. It goes back to the simple story or the simple line. If you're going to cast this first stone, be sure that you are without sin. (laughs) Or if you're going to live in a glass house, don't throw stones. (laughs) And it is as simple as that. And that's what happened. Well, thank you, Salim. The hour has gone by quickly. And of course, the political pendulum keeps swinging. But for us, it continues to swing to the right. So join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right. And be right back here. We'll see you then. Color
Color it to black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright Our club tastefully agrees that 18-year-olds should be allowed to vote just as soon as they become 21. <laughs>